0: My name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're continuing our month of talking about filmmakers from countries that we've never touched upon, even though we've kind of touched upon Taiwan. Well, we've touched upon
1: it in the sense that there is one China.
0: (laughs) No, uh, we've touched upon it in the sense that uh, Hong Kong actors and directors, often when they're, I, I would say, like... Slumming. Having, yeah, having difficulty. When they're They end up in Taiwan, up. yeah.
1: Well, so Taiwan, I guess, is the illegitimate stepbrother mm-hmm. of the Hong Kong film industry. The movies are cheaper. The movies are a little dirtier, a little kookier, a little crazier. At least their exploitation movies are, because... Taiwan has a a dual identity. Mm -hmm. It also has the Taiwanese new wave. Yes, which
0: came out in 1982. Your
1: Edward Yangs, your Ho Sha Shens, your Siming Langs.
0: But when it comes to entertainment, it's like they don't have the resources all the time that Hong Kong does. So they push things a little bit further. Mm -hmm. I was actually reading some articles that, you know, the Taiwanese new wave was kind of championed because there was a lot of difficulty with Taiwanese having their own national cinema because Hong Kong films, which were already established, were the ones that were dominating screen space kind of like how America dominates Canadian screen space
1: you know it's interesting because the Hong Kong exploitation movies or Hong Kong popular cinema I mm. should say generally they're a higher class of movie than the Taiwanese action mm-hmm. movies but Taiwan has a thriving art cinema in a way that Hong Kong doesn't really I mean yeah. Hong I Kong Han- Kar Wai, Hong Kong has Wong Kar Wai, and it has
0: Anne and
1: one or two others
0: so Taiwanese cinema it's sillier it's wackier and we haven't even mention the person that we're talking about this week which is Pearl Chang Uh, or is it Pearl Chang that
1: is one name she's known under she's also often credited as Pearl Chung
0: Pearl Chong yeah she's also Pearl Chung Ling I think the Chinese name is Chan Ling but she's never really been credited as that in any of her movies and Pearl Chang most famously known for Wolf Devil Woman is the only one to my knowledge who in a Chinese language pure entertainment sense has written directed starred produced in her own film I can't think of anybody else. She doesn't have a
1: Wikipedia page. (laughs) No, she doesn't. Uh, We don't really know what the
0: right name to call her is. Well, Pearl Chang is probably not the right way to call her because the Pearl first name only appears on the copies that were put out by IFD, the uh, International Finance Development Company, which is run by our favorite, Godfrey Ho. (laughs) Well,
1: yeah, Godfrey Ho and Joseph Lai. If you are a longtime listener to the podcast, you will know that the dynamic duo of Ho and Lai are best known for having bought a bunch of other people's movies, shooting you know, 20 minutes of ninja footage, splicing that footage into the movies. And it doesn't matter if those movies are dramas, action movies,
0: comedies. They put ninja in it and then they just put it out on the market. Though the films that they released of Pearl Chang, they didn't really touch. They're not edited. They just put them out. They just changed the credits. They also changed the music. They also did really bad dubbing jobs. Some of the worst dubbing jobs I have ever witnessed in movies because like they'll just... Insert the original audio and then they'll just like fade it out and then just put their dubs in and just have no sound effects around it.
1: So Pearl Chang is definitely one of the most obscure topics we've ever tackled to the point where we don't even know what happened to her.
0: No, she disappeared after she was in a TV series in 1985 and no one has heard of her since. At least in the West. Yes. Who knows? Well, I mean, I was following, um, there was a fellow named Durian Dave who... I guess he's a Pearl Chang expert and I listened to a podcast they did on the Infernal Brains and he tried to hunt down uh, what happened to her and he couldn't find any information at all. She was really popular in the 70s because she had a TV show called The Protectors that because the person that was um, running Taiwan uh, undemocratically at that time, uh, Chen Kai-shek, was a huge fan of her and her show, they forced the show to play seven days a week for 90 minutes a day.
1: <laughs> right, so, so, So the show ran from 1974 to five, and. 256 episodes were produced in that time.
0: Insanity. 90
1: minutes a day.
0: And it was like a wuxia show, so like a swords play show, like having fights, you know, mystical adventures. If anyone
1: has this show yeah, s- somewhere. I haven't seen it?
0: any episodes anywhere I would of love it. to see
1: what it looks like.
0: Supposedly, if you go to Taiwan and if you like ask somebody about her, they may not know, but if you hum the theme song, people are like, oh, yeah, I know that mm-hmm. because that's how popular it was. It was like the number one show while it was playing. A
1: year after it went off, the she made her first film called Armed Escort in 1976. As I said, a spinoff of the show. So like on the show, she's a swordsman with magical abilities. That movie was not successful, but she continued to make other films with Mm -hmm. the producer of the show uh, throughout the 70s. And Where we pick up with her is in the early 80s when she became a writer director.
0: Her auteur period, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it should be pointed out that even before she started directing films, she actually created a film company called Friend Limited Company and she actually produced films. Like she was working her way up to directing and being able to star and to write. And of course, right from the get go, when she started making films, she was labeled as difficult and that like people shouldn't work with her Mm -hmm. because she said. Yeah, you know, I don't want to make this film because it's not going to be good. And I want to focus on, like, more prestige projects.
1: If she's known for anything, at least in the West, uh, it's probably two things. One, she is in the movie Fantasy Mission Force with Jackie Chan.
0: (laughs) Nobody says they know her from that, but People have probably seen her from that movie and not realized it.
1: And she is in that movie, I think, Jackie Chan's partner. Yes. Yeah. The
0: few times that Jackie Chan shows up, he's with her.
1: Fantasy Mission Force, by the way, is the movie that Jackie Chan made in Taiwan because he owed a favor to Jimmy Wang Yu, who is a triad who helped get him out of a contract.
0: I feel like Pearl Chang is probably in that movie for also I owe people favor reasons. (laughs)
1: Uh, Jimmy Wang Yu has made several movies over the years that have big, big stars in them who all owed him a favor. Mm-hmm. probably for triad reasons. So that's Fantasy Mission Force, and it's a delight. And it's probably like the quintessential Taiwanese exploitation. Yeah, I movie.
0: think it is the ultimate <laughs> Taiwanese film. <laughs> right.
1: But And the other thing that Pearl Chang is known for, if at all, mm-hmm. is Wolf Devil Woman. Yes.
0: So, also known as Wolf and Queen. Also known as, of course, because it was a Godfrey Ho thing, Wolf and Ninja. <laughs> right.
1: So this is from 1982, and it opens extremely abruptly with a man on a cross, and, <laughs> and there's a violent voodoo ritual happening.
0: And the man gets stabbed and instead of like blood spraying out like you'd expect, it's like animated blood, like cell animated blood that shoots out of him.
1: So so that happens and then it cuts to this snowy wilderness somewhere and by the way, this is another reason why I'm interested in Taiwanese film, because the landscapes are different than they are in mm-hmm. the Hong Kong kung fu movies. Like, if you've seen a lot of Hong Kong kung fu movies, you've seen the same backdrop so many times.
0: You've seen the same carpet if you watch a lot of Shaw Brothers movies. So here it's like, whoa, there's snow? <laughs> yeah. You, you can see this in Asia? <laughs> Whoa, there's snow and it's not Millionaire's Express. This is crazy.
1: So there's a couple who are trying desperately to transport their baby away. And the couple is killed by evil forces.
0: Yeah, a man in a demon mask. A Halloweenish demon mask, if you will.
1: So the baby is left to survive in the wilderness. And the baby is raised by wolves. Mm-hmm. And we then cut to her as a full-grown adult. There's a wandering master and his
0: uh, dopey sidekick
1: sidekick who are, you know, just just exploring the wilderness and they come upon the wolf devil woman played by Pearl Chang. And even though she's been raised by wolves, what that basically means is she can't speak, Mm -hmm. but she can do a lot of other things like ride a horse, (laughs)
0: like vicious martial arts. And we learn that because she swallowed a magic pearl at some point when she gets angry like the Hulk, her hair turns white. And she's a bride of some sort, perhaps a bride with white hair. Yes, if you're a Hong Kong film fan, this is based on the same story. So
1: the master and his sidekick take her in, Mm -hmm. do a bit of a Pygmalion treatment on her to the point where she's a somewhat functioning member of society. And she then decides to take revenge on the evil forces who killed her parents. And the evil forces are the devil or the blue devil.
0: Yeah, the blue devil. So revenge is a theme through all of the films that Pearl Chang uh, directed. A lot
1: of them have the same story.
0: Yeah, it's, they're all like wuxia pictures. So it's like, someone's been wrong, someone learns a skill, usually Pearl Chang, and then she takes revenge on the people that wronged her. So, and, and in
1: all three of the ones I've seen, mm-hmm. it, was, it was her parents die.
0: Yes. The easiest thing to make a dramatic incident about and so we didn't even talk about like why are these films special why do they feel wacky if you will or wild
1: yeah they sort of feel like the gold key comics version of a king who movie. so
0: you're gonna have to explain what gold key comics are to people that don't know
1: gold key comics were like shitty comic books like the bargain basement comics. You're
0: like, Ooh, a Marvel comic. And you're like, you like a parent got them for you. And they're probably, the pages are all yellow because it's old.
1: Yeah. And these were made in the sixties. It was this budget comic company and they would license, you know, Bugs Bunny yeah. or, or a lot of TV shows at the time, like mm-hmm. Gunsmoke or something. <laughs> yeah. And you would read just a shitty comic version of that. It's like, these movies are just very cheap, mm-hmm. but they're clearly knocking off. It's like a broken telephone version yes. of higher budget movies. So, The ones we watched this week, including Miraculous Flower, Mm. have these beautiful forest set action scenes with a lot of wire work that look a lot like Touch of Zen, but, you know, sort of drained of the meaning. Well,
0: you know, it's (laughs) interesting because watching all the films she directed and then watching some of the films she starred in that she wasn't behind the camera, she has a very particular style to her filmmaking that's like very odd, especially even me as like a Hong Kong cinema Flying Swordsman fan. It's like super wacky, lots of jump cuts. There's almost kind of a Japanese influence to her fighting. She's not that interested in like long, elongated combat. She's interested in like the wacky swordplay really fast and, and then someone dies. Yeah, and she doesn't
1: really care if you follow the action No, either. The editing is very jarring yeah. and a seizure inducing.
0: Yeah, it'll be like, P-p-p-p-p-p. it'll be like, uh, you know, Walter Murch says you can't have a cut that's uh, shorter than the blink of the eye. Well, Pearl Chang doesn't believe that. <laughs>
1: and the things that you see in those shortcuts are unbelievable.
0: Yeah, like it's like whoa! People defying
1: laws of physics, beheadings, Pearl Chang stabbing somebody with her soul, sword and then lifting him up in the air. <laughs> That's insane! You yeah. know that that sort of thing, and you know that sounds horrifically violent, and I guess it is. But it's but it's, it's like it's in comic a goofy book. way, it's comic yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah.
0: I mean, like Pearl Chang, these movies have a fascinating kind of. I don't want to say balance because balance is a very a generous word between a kind of, wow, that's beautiful, and whoa, what the heck just happened? Like, for example, Wolf Devil Woman, there's a shot that I've never seen in any other Flying Swordsman film where a character, like, jumps from far away and in slow motion, like, comes towards the camera, and it's, like, a giant, like, hundred-foot gap, and it's done without any cuts. There are a lot of scenes
1: in these movies of people, like, gliding on the water and lakes, or, you know, there's another scene... Um, and I think it was Matching Escort. There are some like ninjas who are like zooming through a lake with their swords coming out of the lake like shark fins, basically. <laughs> yeah. or, or like like when Bugs Bunny is traveling in the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's like right. that
0: effect. Yeah. And
1: they pop out. And you look at it, it's like, whoa, how did they do that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it should be pointed out that Because she was wearing so many hats, these films, while they are wacky, like you would associate with Taiwanese cinema, herself as an actor, she plays things like a lot wackier as like a woman performer than you usually see in something like King Hu, where in King Hu, the women are very, you know, stoic Mm -hmm. and they have no emotion. And something like Wolf Devil Woman, she gets to be big and wild. She's
1: quite a chaplain-esque figure Mm -hmm. and not just... In the fact that she often plays like a tramp figure, yeah, or, or a wandering, no, you didn't even see type.
0: Dark Lady of Kung Fu, where she literally plays a tramp with a bunch of orphans that follow her. Oh,
1: there you go, but but also like Chaplin, she's sort of impish mm-hmm. and, like, you know, cute. Yeah, and playful. A very skilled, like, physical
0: comedian. Yeah. She doesn't have, like, that Bridget Lynn style kind of, I guess... garbo ass. Like, yeah. And so there's, like, photos out there of, like, in the 70s, it was, like, the women of 70s Taiwanese cinema. And you had a very young Bridget Lynn who, at the time, was, like, appearing in, like, romances and just kind of weepy dramas. And she was, like, in a very nice dress. Mm-hmm. And beside her, you had Pearl Chang in, like, puffy, like, pants and a big, like pirate vest, mm. which is kind of reflects her as even when she was making these movies and the way she appears in them, she was like an outcast, mm. like the supposedly she did all the fashions herself. And like her characters wear wild fashions in the film, My Blade, My Life. She wears like a furry like jacket that looks like a ball on her the entire time.
1: You know, when you watch the Shaw Brothers historical martial arts movies, mm. like the, the Shaw Brothers movies were state of the art productions for Hong Kong. And these ones they definitely look like they're assembled out of thrift store goods yes uh, I mean the sets are but they're insane the, the sets are insane they, yeah. and they look handcrafted it, it definitely looks like like a legion hall that they decorated with some like kooky decorations but
0: miraculous flower ends in an active volcano oh my where god where there is an insane fight scene
1: so I was trying to figure out what that actually was it was supposed
0: to be a volcano yeah because uh, it looked like hell it
1: looks like hell and did they film it in a volcano <laughs> no I don't think so <laughs> but it's huge cuz it looks kind of convincing. Yeah. I was actually wondering how did they accomplish this? <laughs> yeah. This like you're watching it and it's it's hypnotic, mm-hmm. you know?
0: I mean, this is the kind of movie when I talk about Hong Kong cinema. It's like the stuff that you can't see anywhere else that nowhere in the world were delivering movies like this. And then when you become aware they're like, "Oh, Taiwanese cinema is its own branch and they were trying to do things because they didn't have like the I don't want to say the skill level, but the precision of something like the Shaw Brothers. Mm-hmm. They tried to, like, out-wacky them. And that happens a lot, like, in a Hindi cinema... Supposedly people that work in Hindi cinema are jealous of people that work in like Telugu cinema because Telugu cinema gets to be bigger and wilder than Hindi cinema mm-hmm. does because they have to kind of like, overcompensate. look at me. Yeah, they have to <laughs> overcompensate, which is kind of what these movies were doing.
1: Another movie I watched this week, Miraculous Flower, which is also known by as uh, Wolf Devil Woman 3 and also known as Phoenix the Ninja.
0: OK, so, yeah, we should point out that this is known as Wolf Devil Woman 3 and it came out a year before. It came out a year before and you cannot find anywhere on the internet. Internet, except for this uh, article I found through searching through the Wayback Machine of that Durian Day fellow who did a ton of research on her. Not even Hong Kong Movie Database or IMDb or even HK Cinemagic have any of the correct dates of the releases. Wow. So yeah, and I think maybe it's because they all came out like very close together. So mm-hmm. people are like, yeah, who cares? Yeah. Even though, and especially when it's called Wolf Devil Woman Three, even though it came out the year before it. Now this one was not directed by her. No,
1: it's directed by somebody named Fung Ho. At least that's how he's credited.
0: Yeah, he was the son-in-law of a legendary director, but this is actually what people consider the beginning of her auteur period because uh, she, she was very, credit. yeah, and she was very involved with it as well. I believe she presented it, which is a credit you see a lot in like Hong Kong and Taiwanese cinema, whatever that means. In
1: of course, the Western prints, the credited screenwriter is Mister Godfrey Ho.
0: It is not Godfrey Ho. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it
1: seems very unlike him to take credit for someone else's work. <laughs>
0: and in this one doesn't she want revenge again
1: They she wants revenge in all of them this one is a little more of a sober affair than mm. Wolf Devil Woman I mean it's also absolutely
0: ridiculous and this is the one that out of all the movies that uh, me and Will watch it's the one that has like the clearest widescreen transfer because a lot of these are like zoomed in like not even pan and scan just like zoom into the center
1: Ma- matching escort was pan and scan yeah. and it's like I-, I was thinking when's the last time I've watched a pan and scan movie <laughs>
0: yeah We're spoiled! We get all these, you know, in the pristine transfer, then when finally you find a filmmaker that no one really cares about, and no one will probably save her films. Supposedly some of her films still exist in the Taiwanese um, film archives, yeah, because... Some of, if you look at our IMDb, there's like three or four films that do not exist anywhere. Oh the God. ones that we're talking about, you know, we're making a lot of fun of Godfrey Ho, but we probably wouldn't know they exist if he did not release them himself.
1: Yeah. Good for Godfrey Ho. Yeah. He's there you a go. Saint. So in Miraculous Flower, it begins with her as, as a young woman being sent by her dying mother on a quest, a mysterious quest, where she will learn how she became who she is. Mm-hmm. And she's given this big staff by her mother. And as I said, this is the more sober. <laughs>
0: of her films. <laughs> this is the one that she also fa- falls down a pit and gets trained by a like a kung fu wizard. Oh, well, uh, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves
1: because first she meets a traveling scholar on mm-hmm. the road and the traveling scholar trains her a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the big key moment is when she gets in a fight with a ninja type on a rope bridge. Yes. And it is a real rope bridge. Yeah. And he throws her staff over the uh, over the bridge and she's going to kill herself. And then a magical fairy, uh, I think it might be the happy fairy Yeah. Or something the like
0: Happy fairy or something like that in English stuff. She
1: comes out of nowhere and it's like, don't kill yourself. Well, I'll, I'll train you. And she gives her magical abilities. And this is also a recurring thing in Pearl Chang's movies where there's like a flowering. Mm-hmm. Like in the last act of the movie, she becomes a a much more serious warrior figure mm-hmm. for the for the final violent revenge, uh, which is what happens in this one. And, you know, some of the fights in this one, this is the one that ends in the act of Volcano. Yeah. And but there's also that fight on the rope bridge. There's also also a fight on a waterfall, which yes, is pretty a amazing.
0: Wacky, yeah, a massive waterfall. Uh, you know what? I may be confusing some of the movies because when you have a film called Miraculous Flower and Matching Escort, and they came out like within each other and they have the same plots, it's easy to get them mixed up.
1: Matching Escort is the one where she's a young princess and all of her family, and her family has 74 members in it. All 73 of them are killed by a usurper. But yeah. She, she's the 74th. She survives. Mm. So she has to get revenge. <laughs> okay. And this is another, oh my God, these movies blurted. I'm actually yeah. having trouble keeping them apart. Yeah,
0: because they're all like big, crazy climaxes, insane wire work. There's some evil force that appears Obs- at the end.
1: Ridiculous handcrafted sets, mm-hmm. cheap looking costumes, and music stolen from other movies.
0: Yeah, that's probably a Godfrey Ho thing, I think, because ah. she would sing a lot of the theme songs of her films, mm-hmm. and they are not in the English versions of these films.
1: Something I like about pearl chang's movies and something that i'm always looking for in movies is that i think they have a genuinely dreamlike quality yes i the mood is thick i think i maybe overuse the term Mm dreamlike but i think it is like one of the great things that movies can offer more than any other art form to simulate that experience of having a dream you know you can find it in sources as different as david lynch and lucio fulci and you find it here everything is a bit off and it's probably even more so, frankly, in the versions we watched, mm-hmm. where they're a little bit muddy and they're a little bit panned and scanned. <laughs> yes. And they a have little that bit panned and scanned. Godfrey Ho, English dubbing. And the tones I mean, if you think Hong Kong movies have inconsistent tones. I mean, these ones are all over the place from ultraviolence to
0: wacky s- comedy, slapstick and weepy drama. And yet,
1: I don't know, like in a dream, I don't feel the whiplash of the tonal shifts well, it, like it, it, it flows. It makes a weird sort of sense.
0: Mm-hmm. I, what's interesting about all her films, especially that I watch them all in a row, is that they don't. The reason they're kind of mixing in your brain is I think that as a director and a storyteller, she kind of latched on to this template where like, sometimes they'll start start strong and then they'll kind of slow down in the middle and then there'll be a crazy climax at the end that you're like whoa what's going on and you know like in a dream
1: everything looks like sort of a representation of Mm -hmm. what it really looks like those historic costumes don't look like real historic (laughs) no
0: they don't they look like they look like the dream version but even me and you who have watched like a lot of like chinsu Tung films like even the wire work like doesn't feel like the way we're used to this wire work looking. Mm-hmm. It's like working in its own rhythm and its own template that I remember when I first saw Wolf Devil Woman years and years ago, I was like, eh, no thank you because it's not like, I, I felt like it wasn't achieving the goal that I'm like, oh, these guys know how to do it. right? And it wasn't because I under—I didn't understand that like, oh, this is how she approaches this material. And
1: also, frankly, I remember the first time I saw Fantasy Mission Force, mm-hmm. I pro- was probably laughing at it. Right? Yeah, I was probably exactly. like, oh, this is one of those so bad it's good movies.
0: Yeah. Not understanding that Chu Yang Ping was giving you everything that you want. Yeah. And and
1: also, the people who are making these Taiwanese movies know how ridiculous it is.
0: Yes. Mm. They're not like serious going, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. You know, this is important that we should have them go to a haunted house for (laughs) 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So Pearl Chang as a filmmaker and as a person, I think she's still like an enigma that unless she suddenly comes out of the hiding and she wouldn't be that old because she was born in like 1955, I think. Yeah. So if she she could still be around, supposedly she moved to Canada. So oh, maybe what? she, yeah. She <laughs> moved to
1: Canada? Okay, <laughs> listen, anybody listening, sound the alarms, <laughs> find her.
0: We need her. Can you imagine that like, we've gone to like a store somewhere in Chinatown and she's like behind the desk and we just would have no idea.
1: Okay, I'm I, I want to find her. Yeah. Listeners, if you know who, who or where Pearl Chang is, let's get her on the podcast. <laughs>
0: let's get her on the podcast. I want to interview her. I want to know everything. You know, we talked about this before, that like sometimes you think figures are bigger than they actually are. Like I thought that Wolf Devil Woman was a movie like that everybody knew in cult circles. I didn't know it a week ago. <laughs> yeah, and nope, that's not true. Like uh, Will said earlier, she doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, so... Well,
1: let's change that. Yeah,
0: that's right. Let's change it, because, again, I don't know anybody who starred, wrote, directed, and produced the films that they were in in the late 70s and 80s. <laughs> like, it doesn't even exist now. I can't think of any Hong Kong filmmakers doing that. I mean, Hong Kong doesn't really make movies anymore other than Anne Hoy. And also, can you name a
1: woman action star who is also, you know, the total filmmaker?
0: No, I can't. So there, <laughs> so you, go. there you go. I mean, if people are really excited about Pearl Chang, uh, keep an eye on your computer in December for maybe an announcement <laughs> from uh, a certain Blu-ray label. Excellent. Okay, wait, speaking of uh, Blu-ray labels. Oh,
1: yeah. We've got a big announcement. The Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classics line from Golden Ninja Video is back and uh, bigger than ever. Yes. We have our third Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classics release, mm-hmm. and we are paying tribute to one of the patron saints of the podcast, Roger Corman.
0: Yes. And if you're wondering, what else could they say about Roger Corman? Well... We say it for almost three hours. <laughs> That's right.
1: In our new Blu-ray set, Roger Corman, the Tour, we present two of his most beloved public domain titles. <laughs> yeah.
0: But let's make public domain in big letters. Public
1: domain. And by the way, unrestored. Okay?
0: Yeah, unrestored. Because
1: we don't want false advertising here. We are we are a bargain bin company. Yes. We are the good version of the shitty Blu-rays or DVDs you would find at Walmart.
0: Yeah, I don't even... Is there still public domain Blu-rays? Probably not, Probably right? not. No, because the... I mean, companies don't even put out uh, Blu-rays of movies that don't do that well. They just put them out on DVDs. That's right. we're probably cutting edge here.
1: So imagine if the Mattacy DVDs or the Front Row Entertainment or the Brentwood DVDs, name your public domain label. Imagine if they had Criterion Collection extras.
0: Yeah, original art that was made just for the Blu-ray. Liner notes. Yeah. So
1: we... Uh, I didn't even say what the two movies were. Yeah. It's Little Shop of Horrors, the movie he shot in two and a half days Mm -hmm. with an asterisk.
0: Yes. Uh, Learn more by uh, listening to Special Features and The Terror. And the
1: terror is the movie that he made because Boris Karloff owed him two days' work, yep. and he was gonna he was gonna make a movie out of that. <laughs> yep. And he Jack, was. Jack Nicholson is in it, mm-hmm. a young Jack Nicholson as a commander in Napoleon's army. <clears throat> and it was also uncreditedly co-directed by Monty Hellman, Jack Hill, and Francis Ford Coppola.
0: And so we didn't just put these two movies and record one commentary track. We did two commentary tracks because for some reason I thought Little Shop was like an hour. I was wrong. It's almost uh, eighty minutes. And and the terror is 90 minutes, so... We almost died, but... We almost did die.
1: But that's two commentary tracks. We also have a featurette in which we talk about Roger Corman. For
0: 24 minutes. <laughs> as as a
1: director, there's a, a trailer reel mm-hmm. of, of some of his... Underseen movies. Yeah. And there's also a whole bonus movie, Ski Troop Attack.
0: Which uh, you never see on any budget DVD because people go, uh, ah, it doesn't have any like monsters or horror elements, but it's actually really fun. It kind of reminds me of a William Whitney movie. It's like a compact, you know, there's kind of a novel premise. It actually has a Charles B. Griffith script, so it has a little bit of that humor in there. And of course, like all Gold Ninja um, video releases, there is a hidden feature on there, but I'm not going to say what it is. You're going to have to find it out. So where can they get it? They can get it at goldninjavideo.com. And like all Gold Ninja video releases, this one is limited to 200 copies and it does go off sale after a while. Like that Three Stooges one that we had? If you didn't buy it, it's gone. You can't order it anymore. Sorry. But you can still order Kung Fu Zombie and Flesh Freaks and Kill Them and Eat Them, which are all up on the goldninjavideo.com website. And you should know that, like, I think shipping is not that much once you start, like, adding stuff on. Mm. It's like most things. It's, like, expensive if you have one thing. But if you have, like, two or three, it's not that one price triple. All right. So, yeah. Check that release out. Goldninjavideo.com. And we'll have more coming Every month, of course. Do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send us an email at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this letter goes, love the podcast, fellas. I'm an avid listener who has come to greatly enjoy the trenchant insights and deep sensitivity of your show. Well, thank you. In particular, the charity in parsing quite difficult and problematic texts. I would be thrilled if I could hear your thoughts on Nuri... I'm going to say his name wrong. Nuri Bilg Sayland. Kayland, a Turkish director whose 2014 film Winter Sleep, I feel, is the best cinema of the decade. Keep up the excellent work, Otto. Did you see Winter Sleep, Will? All
1: three hours and change of it? I did, and I have to be honest, I don't remember it that well, so I'm not I'm not a good answer on this. I did like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. You know what? I, I also have not seen since it came out.
0: I didn't see that one, but I got um, tricked, and by tricked I mean they just play to my um, my weaknesses. That um, his new film recently got released on a Blu-ray by Cinema Guild, mm-hmm. and on the other podcast I do, the Bay Street Video Podcast, where we talk about all the new DVDs and Blu-rays, um, my co-host Mark Hansen was like, "Oh yeah, it has a six-hour documentary on it," and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, "Oh, that's catnip." Yeah, for that's catnip for me. And so the movie itself is great. It would have definitely made my top 10 list if I had seen it two, in 2018. It's called The Wild Pear Tree, and it's about a young Turkish man who just graduated from university who comes to his small town that he hates, and he wants to be a writer, and he thinks that he's better than everybody, and he kind of looks down on everyone. And has a great mixture of like him wandering around, meeting old friends, and kind of seeing where they're in their life, kind of proving that he's a jackass, <laughs> while also mixing in with like these weird, surrealistic elements, and you feel that the director has been really kind of let loose with like digital and kind of like um, gimbal technology to do like beautiful shots. It's a film that you like luxuriate in. Like every shot is so beautiful when you watch it. Oh. And it's such like a simple movie too. Oh, sounds great. I'll check it out. Yeah. And it's like three and a half hours that it just flew by. Like it wasn't nice. like, oh, when is this over? It's, yeah. which I've heard a lot of people complain about his other films. Definitely a filmmaker I would check. Maybe we would do a Patreon episode on him though. Mm-hmm. Cause I can't see us watching like three or four of his films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I would definitely like to talk about him because I do think he is an interesting filmmaker. We've been working since the 90s so he's been around for a while really came to prominence this decade though yeah i feel like winter sleep is the one that people are like oh look at this and also once upon a time in and once upon a time yeah Yeah. that one as well in hollywood (laughs) yeah that's right he's directing a marvel movie now yep (laughs) that they contacted him so next week we're doing someone i've wanted to do for a long time but he's a filmmaker who's made so many films i think he's made like 150 or 200 feature films Mm -hmm. uh and it's raul ruiz and he's a chilean director who uh kind of exiled himself and worked mostly in France and Germany or wherever there was money. And if people haven't seen his movies, they are wild. And I only discovered him because I'm sure Will heard about him in the same place, our good friend Jero. Oh, yeah. Jonathan Rosenbaum
1: is a big fan. And Raul Ruiz is a blind spot for me. Yes. A shameful one.
0: But it, he is a very intimidating subject. A very intimidating subject. I think. I'll recommend you watch City of Pirates, which is one of his like big movies Mm -hmm. and probably one of his kind of more american films i would recommend if you're listening to watch mysteries of lisbon will is not going to watch the movie it is five hours long so that's not going to happen but maybe um memories of things past which was his proust adaptation Mm -hmm. which i think is still like two hours and a half yeah that's fine yeah so we will definitely be exploring him and maybe will you want to check out um the territory the one that was uh produced by an uncredited roger corman Really? Yes, you didn't know that? No. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my God. So we can
1: add Raul Ruiz to his yeah. alumni?
0: And you know that Vim Vendors movie about them, like, they have to go see Roger Corman to get film? I don't remember what it's called. Oh, no. You never heard I about that I don't know that. I don't have the title in front of me. But, like, that was inspired by, like, the territory when it was shooting. Wow. Because <laughs> it's just, you know, Roger Corman loved to go to places where there's no unions to try to get movies made. Sure. And I think the territory was an example of that happening. So I'm excited to explore his filmmaker's work, which... People don't really talk about that much. Uh, like Cinemascope, you'll see an article about him, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. So, all right, that's what we're doing next week. Until then, my is Dustin Blue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Will, breaking news. It's really going to help uh, the cinema landscape. I know you complain about it a lot. Marvel, et cetera, Disney, terrible companies. But whew, you know what? The legal system, they're coming in the States, and they're going to take away that Paramount rule. Oh, thank God.
1: Yeah, whew, yeah. good news, so right? So this means we're going to go back to the studio era, right? Yeah, Our that's mov- right. When movies were good. Yeah, that's right. That's what people want. I did see this news. The uh, federal government in the United States is moving to uh, revoke the 1949 Paramount Decree, which was the landmark case that basically heralded the end of, you know, the so-called Golden Age of Hollywood. Mm -hmm.
0: The factory line of Hollywood. Yeah,
1: because back in the day, and I say that as if I think it was a bad thing, but actually it was a very good thing.
0: (laughs) Yes, Uh, yeah. Uh, We were being sarcastic earlier on. Um, We'll get into why it's bad. Very bad. I mean,
1: don't get me wrong. The Golden Age of Hollywood was great, but what's not great is... Companies is, owning
0: the theaters. Is monopolies. Yes. So yeah,
1: movie studios used to own movie theaters and they could block book mm-hmm. their movies. And it was not a hospitable landscape for independent film. And so, you know, after that Supreme Court ruling, I mean, would there have been an American International Pictures? No. Would there have been a John Cassavetes? I mean, I
0: don't no, know. Probably not like... because you couldn't because the studios would own the theaters. And if it's not a film made by their studio, they wouldn't play it. At their theater. So,
1: yeah, the uh, Justice. Department of Justice. Department of Justice. Thank you has said that there has been big changes in the film landscape since then, and these rules are all out of date.
0: So they're going to fucking let companies, like, be bigger monopolies? (laughs) Okay, so, you know, what this means
1: is that within 10 years...
0: Disney's going to own every theater.
1: Disney will own every theater. I mean, there will be niche theaters, I guess, but they will not be full-time operations.
0: Well, I mean, it kind of exists that way in Canada, and I'm sure it's like that in the States, is that, like, independent theaters cannot play first-run movies because Cineplex comics who has the monopoly mm. on Canadian cinemas, which is ridiculous. I mean, it there, should used, not exist. there
1: used to be other chains. I yeah. think AMC was bought by them. Mm-hmm. There was also famous players in the famous 90s.
0: players, which was bought by Cineplex and then became a uh, famous player Cineplex or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so they, you can't play a movie if it's within the um, like ridiculous, like 20 kilometer vicinity of a Cineplex theater playing that movie.
1: And Cineplex very consciously uses that to, strangle out the independent theaters Mm -hmm. because of course we have repertory theaters that would make good business on second run movies but what Cineplex would do is like let's say Green Book was playing Mm -hmm. and and Green Book was in the fifth month of its run they would have it playing at the Young and Dundas Cineplex at one o'clock every day specifically so that the second run theaters couldn't get it
0: that's the only reason they would do it and like those second run theaters that's how they paid the bills Mm -hmm. with those second run movies and they can do the wackier stuff that like more community building and kind Mm -hmm. of those fringe titles and now they can't do that like the Royal Cinema where I program my stuff used to do second run, and then it got ridiculous. Like the stuff would be on Blu-ray, and that's the only time they could get it to play it. So they're like, "We're not doing any more second run movies." I mean, I remember ever. when they
1: finally got the Force Awakens after yeah. it was on Blu-ray for I think a month. A month or yeah. Yeah. Do
0: you want to hear a crazy rule that nobody knows about? But I only know because I do a podcast at um, a movie rental place. Movie rental stores that there's almost none of them cannot rent Disney movies. Until, like, I think it's a month or two months after they've been released. Really? That is a rule that they cannot stock them unless they follow that rule. What the... What
1: is... What? Okay, now how does that work? Because video stores started... Like, the the legalities of video stores was that if you bought a video, Mm -hmm. if the store bought the video, they could do whatever they want with it.
0: Yes. So they could rent it out. But originally... Um, There was no sell-through market, so they would have to spend, like, $100 for that tape, Mm. right? So I think the studios thought that they were covered at that point. But instead, Disney, like, wants to strangle the few, like, dollars a video store would make by renting out a title Uh (laughs) instead of just allowing them to do it. Like, there's not that many video rental stores. How is this a rule?
1: Right. So anyway, Disney is buying up all of these studios and archives so, I mean, I the the day that Matt Zoller cites his article about the fact that repertory cinemas can't book Fox movies anymore, mm-hmm. the day that that came out, I think Sony raised the prices yes, on its rep.
0: they theories. did. Basically, rentals now are completely, um, at least when you want prints, they are completely unfathomable to any rep theater. Mm-hmm. Because basically, if people don't know... What's really expensive to play prints is shipping. It is so expensive because it's like so many cans. It can be hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And usually to play a title, it'd be $250 or a split of percentage afterwards. But $250 is usually the minimum that you would have to pay. I think they boosted it to $350 or $450. And you're not going to make a profit when you're playing a movie that like $50 maybe a hundred people will show up mm-hmm. to. So they just basically wanted to price themselves at a point that they don't have to worry about it anymore and they don't have to deal with any requests, mm-hmm. which is uh, terrible. I mean, this <laughs> No is... one could see me giving a sarcastic sums up. So,
1: I, I mean, I want to have a nuanced understanding of what's happening in the film landscape because, okay, if you tell me that a lot of people want to stay home and watch things on Netflix, like, I don't know, a movie like, let, let's say Moneyball. Yes. That's a movie I saw in a theater. If it came out on Netflix, if it were coming out today and we were Netflix original, I think that's fine. Yeah, whatever. You know, it Mm -hmm. looks it's just as good on Netflix. So if you tell me that people's consumption habits are changing, I agree to a degree. But then if you're telling me that that means all of these independent theaters and repertory theaters are going have to, a to close business, down. Yes. I don't think that's strictly the invisible hand of the market. That
0: is. Well, no, that's someone in a boardroom going, what decisions can we make that theoretically would give us more money? Oh, well, if we stop renting stuff out, maybe people would stop going to the theaters and they'd stay at home and watch it. Because mm, we would rather
1: ha- have them watch the stuff on Disney Plus. Yes. We don't want them going out to this little community center.
0: Yes, exactly. That's mm-hmm. what they would rather have people. do. I mean, we've talked about this. Before that, Disney do not rent their movies, period, to theaters. So they might as well open a Disney theater because nobody can play them. So I mean,
1: I think that's what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, that is going to be that that is what's going to happen.
1: every city is going to have one movie theater, and it's going to be a big entertainment complex, and it's going to play Avengers and Star Wars movies on loop, and everything else is going to go streaming in some capacity.
0: You know, it would be good if, and it probably never happened, like. I posted this article a few weeks ago on Twitter that South Korea is like very strict about like monopolies Mm. uh, coming in and like uh, dominating screens, like rules that like American films can only have this much percentage. And thanks to those rules, Endgame was beaten by a South Korean film overall at the box office. Was it Parasite? No, it was a film called Extreme Job, which is very good. But, you know, no one has heard about it. I mean, that's awesome. That is amazing. (laughs) Can you imagine if Canada, like, every time Canada... I think I wrote about this in the Important Cinema Club Journal, that, like, every time they've tried to impose a rule, the people are like, we promised to put, like, a tax on movies. And then they go in a room and they come back in really nice suits and they're like, maybe we'll make it voluntary. You know,
1: the the fact that these companies, and specifically Disney, want to push these independent theaters out of business, I don't know, it's sad to me because... I mean, first of all, I I know how much fun some of these movies can be with a communal experience. Yeah, I know everybody brings up like Die Hard and Home Alone at Christmas, mm-hmm. and but like those things really are fun for
0: people, and they are Christmas. important for people as well.
1: Yeah, and like it's it's great to it's great to have community experiences mm-hmm. because you know we're increasingly atomized in our opportunities for communal experiences like that are fewer. There are fewer, you know, communal spaces. Mm -hmm. We're we're being encouraged to stay home in our little entertainment pods.
0: And at the same time, they want us to, like, talk on Twitter and stuff like that, which is the I mean, it is communal, but it's also like the illusion of a communal experience. Like, I would not love movies as much as I do if I hadn't been able to go experience some with a crowd.
1: And I do think it's a shame that some of those Disney movies and some of those movies Disney owns. Just never play. I mean, I don't give a shit about Star Wars, but I'm sure lots of people would have a lot of fun watching A New Hope in theaters.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't we can't watch Deep Impact in theaters (laughs) because Disney, no, not Deep Impact, Deep Rising, (laughs) Stephen Sommersville. And I
1: know that, you know, Disney is very canny and they, you know, they they...
0: aren't you rich enough? Aren't you you guys have enough money?
1: Well, you know, wouldn't it be great if more kids could experience, I don't know, Pinocchio
0: or something for the Mm. first time in a
1: movie theater?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it would. It's just a shame. It's not going to (laughs) happen.